Section 9 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 4, Claudius, A.D. 41 to 54, Part 1. Few credited at first the tidings of the death of Gaius. Many thought the story was only spread by him in some mad freak to test their feelings, and so they feared to show either grief or joy. When at last they found that it was true, and that Caesonia and his child were also murdered, they noted in their gossip that all the Caesars who bore the name of Gaius had died a violent death, and then they waited quietly to see what the Senate and the soldiers thought of doing. The Senate met at once in the capital, where the consuls summoned to their guard the cohorts of the watch, there with the memorials of the past, the tokens of ancient freedom round them, they could take counsel with becoming calmness and dignity. The emperor was dead, and there seemed no claimant with a title to the throne. Should they venture to elect a sovereign, regardless of the warnings of the past, or should they set up a commonwealth once more and breathe fresh life into the shadowy forms about them? The discussion lasted all that day, and the night passed without a final vote. But it was all idle talk, for the Praetorians, meanwhile, had made their choice. The tidings of the emperor's death soon reached the camp and drew the soldiers to the city. Too late to defend or even to avenge their sovereign, they dispersed in quest of booty and roamed through the palace at their will. One of the plunderers, passing by the alcove of a room, espied the feet of someone hidden behind the half-closed curtains. Curious to see who it might be, he dragged him out and recognized the face of Claudius, the late emperor's uncle. He showed him to his comrades who were near and possibly in jest they saluted him as their new prince, raised him at once upon their shoulders, and carried him in triumph to the camp. The citizens who saw him carried by marked his piteous look of terror and thought the poor wretch was carried to his doom. The Senate heard that he was in the camp, but only sent to bid him take his place among them, and heard seemingly without concern that he was there detained by force. But the next day found them in a different mood. The populace had been clamoring to have a monarch, the Praetorians had sworn obedience to their newfound emperor, the city guards had slipped away, and the Senate, divided and disheartened, had no course left them but submission. Tiberius Claudius Nero Germanicus, the son of Drusus, grandson of Livia Augusta, suffered in early years from lingering diseases which left him weak both in body and in mind. The Romans commonly had little tenderness for sickly children. Antonia and his mother even spoke of him as a monster, as a thing which nature had rough-hewn but never finished, while his grandmother would not deign to speak to him except by messenger or letter. Though brought up in the palace, he was little cared for, was left to the tender mercies of a muleteer of whose rough usage he spoke bitterly in after life, and even when he came to manhood was not allowed to show himself in public life or hope for any of the offices of state. We may still read the letters written by Augustus to his wife in which he speaks of him as too imbecile for any public functions, 
too awkward and ungainly to take a prominent place even in the circus at the show. The only honor which he gave him was a place in the priesthood of the augurs, and at his death he left him a very paltry legacy. Nor did Tiberius think more highly of him. He gave him only the poor grace of consular ornaments, and when he asked to have the consulship itself, his uncle took no further notice than to send him a few gold pieces to buy good cheer with in the holidays. His nephew Gaius made him consul, but encouraged the rough jest with which his courtiers bantered him. If he came late among the guests at dinner, they shifted their seats and shouldered him away till he was tired of looking for an empty place. If he fell asleep as was his wont, they plastered up his mouth with olives or put shoes upon his hands that he might rub his eyes with them when he woke. He was sent by the Senate into Germany to congratulate the emperor on his supposed successes, but Gaius took it ill and thought the choice of him was such a slight that he had the deputation flung into the river. Ever after he was the very last to be asked in the Senate for his vote, and when he was allowed to be one of the new priests, the office was saddled with such heavy fees that his household goods had to be put up to auction to defray them. After such treatment from his kinsmen, it was no wonder that he sunk into coarse and vulgar ways, indulged his natural liking for low company, ate largely and drank hardly, and turned to dice for his amusement. Yet he had also tastes of a much higher order, kept Greeks of literary culture round him, studied hard and with real interest, and at the advice of the historian Livy took to writing history himself. His first choice of subject was ambitious, for he tried to deal with the troubled times that followed Julius Caesar's death, but he was soon warned to leave so dangerous a theme. He wrote also largely on the history of Etruria and Carthage, and later authors often used the materials collected by or for him. Of the latter of the two works we read that a courtly club was formed at Alexandria to read it regularly through aloud from year to year. Such was the man who in his fiftieth year was raised to the empire by a soldier's freak to rule in name, but to be in fact the puppet of his wives and freedmen. These were the real governors of the world, and their intrigues and rivalries and lust and greed have left their hateful stamp upon his reign. The freedmen had for a long time played an important part in the domestic life of Rome, for the household slaves that were so numerous at this time in every family of ample means could look commonly for freedom after some years of faithful service, though their old master still had legal claims upon them, and custom and old associations bound them to their patron and his children. They haunted the houses of the wealthy, filled all the offices of trust, and ministered to their business and pleasures. Among them there were many men of refinement and high culture, natives of Greece and Asia, at least as well educated as their masters, and useful to them in a hundred ways, as stewards, secretaries, physicians, poets, confidants, and friends. The emperor's household was organized like that of any noble. Here, too, there were slaves for menial work, and freedmen for the posts of trust. The imperial position was too new and ill-defined, the temper of the people too republican as yet, for men of high social rank and dignity to be in personal attendance in the palace. Offices like those of high steward, chamberlain, 
great seal and treasurer to the monarch had the stigma of slavery still branded on them and were not such as noblemen could covet but these were already posts of high importance and much of the business of state was already in the freedmen's hands for by the side of the senate and the old curule officers of the republic the empire had set up both in the city and the provinces a new system of administrative machinery of which the emperor was the centre and mainspring to issue instructions check accounts receive reports and keep the needful registers became a daily increasing burden and many skilful servants soon were needed to be in constant attendance in the palace the funeral inscriptions of the time show that the official titles in the imperial household were becoming rapidly more numerous as the functions were more and more subdivided when the ruler was strong and self-contained his servants took their proper places as valets de chambre ushers and clerks while the privileged few were confidential agents and advisers when he was inexperienced or weak they took the reins out of his hands and shamefully abused their power much too low in rank to have a political career before them they were not weighted with the responsibilities of power and could not act like the cabinet ministers of modern europe the theory of the constitution quite ignored them and they were only creatures of the emperor who was not the fountain of honour like later kings and could not make them noble if he would as high ambitions were denied them and they could not openly assert their talents they fell back commonly on lower aims and meaner arts they lied and intrigued and flattered to push their way to higher place they used their power to gratify a greedy avarice or sensual lust wealth was their first and chief desire and their master's confidence once gained riches flowed in upon them from all sides to get easy access to the sovereign's ear was a privilege which all were glad to buy the suitors who came to ask a favour a post of profit or of honour the litigants who feared for the goodness of their cause and wished to have a friend at court vassal princes eager to stand well in the emperor's graces town councillors longing for some special boon or for relief from costly burdens provincials of every class and country ready to buy at any cost the substantial gift of roman franchise hundreds such as these all sought the favourite in the antechamber and schemed and trafficked for his help there was no time to be lost indeed for a monarch's favour is an unstable thing and shrewd adventurers like themselves were ever plotting to displace them at any moment they might be disgraced so they grasped every chance that brought them gain and speedily amassed colossal fortunes men told a story at the time with glee that when claudius complained of scanty means a bystander remarked that he would soon be rich enough if two of his favourite freedmen would admit him into partnership now for the first time the personal attendants take a prominent place in public thought and history is forced to note their names and chronicle their doings and the story of their influence passes from the scandalous gossip of the palace to the pages of the gravest writers in the days of his obscurity they had shared the meaner fortunes of their master enlivened his dullness by their wit and catered for his literary tastes they had provided theories of style and learning and research though they could not give him sense to use them 
and now they were doubtless eager to help their patron to make history not to write it. Greedily they followed him to the palace, and swooped upon the empire as their prey. Two of his old companions towered above all the rest, Pallas and Narcissus. The former had been with Claudius from childhood and filled the post of keeper of the privy purse or steward of the imperial accounts. In such a post, with such a master, it was easy for him to enrich himself and he did not neglect his opportunities. But his pride was even more notable than his wealth. He would not deign to speak even to his slaves, but gave them his commands by gestures, or, if that was not enough, by written orders. His arrogance did not even spare the nobles and the senate, but they well deserved such treatment by their servile meanness. The younger Pliny tells us some years afterwards how it moved his spleen to find in the official documents that the senate had passed a vote of thanks to Pallas and a large money grant, in that he had declined the gift and said he would be content with modest poverty if only he could be still of dutiful service to his lord a modest poverty of many millions. Narcissus was the emperor's secretary, and as such familiar alike with state secrets and with his master's personal concerns. He was always at his side to jog his memory and guide his judgment. In the senate, at the law courts, in cabinet council, at the festive board, nothing could be done without his knowledge. In most events of moment his influence may be traced. Men chafed no doubt at the presumption of the upstart, and told with malicious glee of the retort made by the freedmen of the conspirator Camillus, who, when examined in the council chamber by Narcissus, and asked what he would have done himself if his master had risen to the throne, answered, I should have known my place and held my tongue behind his chair. They heard with pleasure, too, that when he went on a mission to the mutinous soldiery in Britain and tried to harangue them from their general's tribune, they would not even listen to him, but drowned his voice with the songs of the Saturnalia, the festive time at Rome, when the slaves kept holiday and took their master's places. But at Rome none dared to be so bold, though his influence at court stirred the jealousy of many, who whispered to each other that it was no wonder he grew rich so fast, when he made so much by peculation out of the great works which he prompted Claudius to undertake, and one of which at least, the outlet for the Lucrine Lake caused almost a public scandal by its failure. After them came Polybius, whose literary skill had often served his patron in good stead and gave him constant access to his ear. No sinister motives can be traced to him. At worst we hear that he was vain and thought himself on a level with the best and liked to take the air with a consul at each side. He had cool impudence enough, we read, for in the theatre, when the people pointed at him as they heard a line about a beggar on horseback who was hard to brook, he quoted at once another line from the same poet of the kings that had risen from a low estate. Callistus lent to the newcomers in the palace his long experience of the habits of a court. He had served under the last ruler, could suit his ways to please a new master, so unlike the old, and soon took a high place among the ruling clique by his tact and knowledge of the world of Rome. Felix, too, whom we read of in the story of St. Paul, gained possibly through his brother Pallas the post of governor of Judea, but must have had rare qualities to marry, as Suetonius tells us, three queens in succession. 
Posides was the soldier of the party. His military powers, shown in the sixteen days' campaign of Claudius in Britain, raised him above other generals in his master's eyes, like his stately buildings, which Juvenal mentions as outtopping the capital. There is no need to carry on the list. These are only the most favored of the party, the best endowed with natural gifts, the most trusted confidants of Caesar. The first care of the new government was to reassure the public mind. Chirea and his accomplices must die. Indeed, for the murder of an emperor was a fatal thing to overlook, and they were said to have threatened the life of Claudius himself. For all besides there was a general amnesty. Marked deference was shown by the new ruler to the Senate, and the bold words latterly spoken by its members were unnoticed. Few honors were accepted in his own name, while the statues of Gaius were withdrawn from public places, his acts expunged from all official registers, and his claims to divine honors ignored, as those of Tiberius had been before. The people were kept in good humor by the public shows and merry-makings, as the soldiers had been by the promise of fifteen hundred sesterces a man, and so the new reign began amid signs of general contentment. The next care of the little clique was to keep their master in good humor, to flatter his vanities and gratify his tastes, while they played upon his weakness and governed in his name. This they did for years with rare success, thanks to their intimate knowledge of his character and to the harmony that prevailed among themselves. He had all the coarse Roman's love for public games, was never weary of seeing gladiators fight, so they helped him to indulge his tastes and make merry with the populace of Rome. As the common round of spectacles was not enough, new shows must be lavishly provided. From the early morning till the entertainment closed, he was always in his seat, eager to see the cages of the wild beasts opened and to lose nothing of the bloody sport. The spectators could always see him with his wagging head and the broad grin upon his slobbering mouth, could hear him often crack his poor jokes on what went on, sometimes noting with amusement how he hurried with his staggering legs across the arena to coax or force the reluctant gladiators to resume their deadly work. They noted also that he had the statue of Augustus first veiled and then removed from the scene of bloodshed as if the cruel sport that amused the living must offend the saintly dead. He was fond also of good cheer, so fond of it that he sometimes lost sight of his dignity. One day, as he sat upon the judgment seat, he smelt the savor of a burnt offering in a temple close at hand, and breaking up the court in haste, he hurried to take his seat at dinner with the priests. At another time in the Senate, when the discussion turned on licensing the public houses, he gravely spoke about the merits of the different wine shops where he had been treated in old days. So, feasting was the order of the day. Great banquets followed one upon the other, and hundreds of guests were bidden to his table, at which few ate or drank so freely or so coarsely as himself. But he had more royal taste than these, for he aspired to be a sort of Solomon upon the seat of justice. As magistrate or as assessor by the rule chair, or in the Senate when grave cases were debated, he would sit for hours listening to the pleaders or examining the witnesses, sometimes showing equity and insight, sometimes so frivolous and childish in his comments that litigants and lawyers lost their patience altogether. 
as the father of the people it seemed one of his first cares to find his children bread and no little time and thought were spent by him or by his agents in seeing that the granaries were filled and the markets well supplied yet the poor were not always grateful for once when prices rose they crowded in upon him in the forum and pelted him with hard words and crusts of bread till he was glad to slink out by a back door to his palace for his was certainly the familiarity that breeds contempt his presence speech and character were too ungainly and undignified to impose respect and even in his proclamations his advisers let him air his folly to the world sometimes he spoke in them about his personal foibles confessed that he had a hasty temper but that it soon passed away and said that in years gone by he had acted like a simpleton to disarm the jealousy of gaius then again he put out public edicts as full of household cures and recipes as the talk of any village gossip End of section nine